How are you out there tonight? Amen. Seventy-five degrees today. Perfect bow hunting weather. So we're in Matthew 13 tonight. I'm going to read you some verses here, verse 47 through 50. We're looking at the kingdom parables. We've been preaching our way through them, and we're going to look at another one tonight. Uh, again, parables were these familiar stories that Jesus used to connect with the culture. He would use illustrations and examples of things that were very commonplace that the people would understand. Uh, maybe if he was telling <laughs> a parable today, he would say Let the kingdom of God is not like social media. But everybody would know what social media was. So he's using these common illustrations to connect with people so that they can understand the mechanics of what he's talking about. But then he uses those examples to teach a deeper spiritual meaning. And not all the people got the meaning. Sometimes the disciples didn't get the meaning. Sometimes you and I don't get the meaning. Uh, but he's putting it out there. And for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and are led by the Spirit, these things come alive. So uh, these kingdom parables are showing what the kingdom of God is like. Well, why does he have to do that? Because we are in the world, but we're not of it. So we are of a different kingdom. How many here tonight have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord and you're born again? Amen. Well, you're not of this world. You're just passing through. So don't put your roots down too deep here. Uh, pay it forward and put, gain for yourself treasure in heaven. Amen. But we're learning what the kingdom is like so uh, from these common examples so that we can understand it. And Jesus is, you know, using these things to clue us in uh, about the realm that we are destined to live in, but we're not quite there yet. So listen to Matthew 13. I'm going to read verses 47 through 50, and we're going to talk about the kingdom parable of the dragnet tonight. Jesus speaking, verse 47 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world or the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Kind of a powerful uh, statements here that Jesus is making. I don't know about you, but it starts off pretty good. We're fishing, and fishing's good. But by the end, there's people getting thrown into a fiery furnace. So this kingdom parable is showing uh, some serious things here. Now let's look at this parable that's called the dragnet. And it uses a fishing technique that they were common in those days. People understood it. They would cast these big nets out. You know, if you lived in this culture, if you were by the sea, you would see the fishermen tending their nets, mending their nets. You'd see boats full of nets. You'd see fishermen hauling in fish out of the net. And, and you would get it, exactly what they're saying. But this fishing technique of casting out a net and pulling in a whole bunch of fish at once is a little less commonplace for us. You know, we're kind of the rod and the reel and the hook and the worm type crowd. You know, but back then, they weren't fishing for fun. They were fishing to eat. 
And so they used these big nets and they would multiply their catch per cast. And these boats would throw the nets out and drag this large section of water with the net. And everything that the net, as it plummeted through the water and then was pulled back, everything in that section that they cast it into would be caught up into the net and pulled into the boat. So now there's a deeper spiritual meaning here, and we're going to unpack that. Let's look at the symbolism of the parable of the dragnet. First thing we have to look at is the net. <laughs> it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net. Wow, how so, Lord? Well, let's look at the net itself. The net represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. The net is the gospel. What do we cast out to gather in a harvest of souls we cast out not our denomination not our not our religious affiliation not our spiritual opinions hello right that doesn't work we don't need the gospel of full gospel center we don't need the gospel of pastor rick we need the gospel of jesus christ because it's the only one that has the power to turn sinners into saints so the gospel is the net amen that's a good place to clap amen and we got to always remember that. You know, in us reaching out to people, sometimes we think, well, you know, friendship evangelism, or we got to do this, or we got to, you know, let's build them a house, let's do Habitat for Humanity, let's, you know, let's go on the mission field, let's do it. And all that stuff is good, but let us never forget, it's not our works that bring men into the kingdom. It's not our physical efforts. It's not building them a place to live, or it's not, you know, introducing them to, you know, some group that we're in. It is the gospel that saves people. We've got to always remember, now, if we use all those other things to introduce the gospel to them, so be it. That's just good fishing, right? When you go fishing, you don't just throw a bare hook in the water. How many people here fish? How many people have ever fished? Seen people, okay, good. Got to get away from the computer and get dirt under your nails. Get out there, grab some worms, have some fun. But, you know, uh, when you fish, if the fish aren't biting on what you're throwing out there, what do you do? Change the bait. Now, we never change the gospel, but we can change the way we present it or the way we cast it out there, but we never change the gospel. The gospel is unchangeable, but... The bait and the methodology, you know, sometimes you're casting and you're trolling, sometimes you're jigging. So there's all different methods, okay? If you fish, you get this. If not, you're looking at me like you're looking at me. So understand, we don't change the gospel. The gospel is the net, and we cast it out there. And everyone, you know, everyone gets a chance to hear the gospel and to respond to it. We're going to see that that's the heart of God. Now, God never intended the gospel, which is the good news, to only be heard by a few select people. Any religious system that says it's, it's, it's just God just blesses us for no more or just our people, unless you're baptized in this church, you can't go to heaven. Look, that's a cult, okay? Get out of there. Did you hear me? Get out of there. I don't care if they're on TV, a big name, wrote a lot of books. No, the gospel is what brings us in. And the net is the gospel. Now, everybody gets a chance to hear it. It's not just for a select few. It's not just for the special people that God likes or the elite or the intellectuals. Like somehow you have to have this great wisdom to understand the things of God. And then, you no, Matthew 24, 14 makes it very clear that none of that is true. Listen to what Matthew 24, 14 says. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Did you hear that? 
all the world, all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus, come back quickly. Church, preach the gospel. You didn't like that, did you? Your, your facial expressions didn't even change. Oh, we're waiting on Jesus. Maybe he's waiting on us. That's why missions are so important. That's why our witness is so important. That's why us sitting there like a barnacle on the, on the boat of humanity is not saving anybody, amen? I'm looking at some barnacles. Thank God we're here, Lord, we're barnacles. But we, we've got to preach this gospel because it's got to be preached to all the people, all the nations, then the end will come. So it's not for a select few. It's a net. It's not a single hook. It's a net. It takes a wide berth. It takes a, a big catch-in. So when it comes to us sharing the gospel, remember our lesson from the seed and the sower. There's no shortage of seed, and there's no shortage of the gospel, that net that we cast out in the kingdom of God. So we sow the seed liberally, and we should cast out the net liberally, amen? You don't go out on the boat and, and you know, row around or sail around for eight hours and maybe throw the net out once. If you see these guys fish, they work it. They're throwing it out there. They're trying this direction, that direction, this. If they're getting nothing, they're moving. They're reading the water. They're looking for schools of fish. They're looking for minnows jumping. They work it. And we need to learn from that. It's part of the imagery, part of the symbolism here of the net. So cast that net out. You, you say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? I mean, share the gospel with everyone you can. Oh, they're not going to want to hear it. Oh, they've heard it before. Oh, share the gospel with everyone you can. I know it's a hard sell, but share the gospel with everyone you can. <laughs> I have a hard time, too. There's people, they know who I am. Oh, there's the preacher, you know, and they, they make a wide berth around me. But, you know, the last thing I want to do is preach at people and chase them away. But I try to live the gospel in front of them and look for opportunities to share with them. And if all of us would do that, I'm telling you what, cast that net out, we're going to catch more. You catch more fish when you cast than when you don't. Mm. So the gospel's for everybody. It's a net. It's to be thrown out there. You know, sometimes we look around and uh, we, we don't sow it liberally because we talk ourselves out of it. We look at that person, oh, they're too proud or... They're, they're not into Jesus. Or do we see some people think they're ripe and they're ready and they seem to be the toughest ones to get. Oh, this guy will be open to it and you share it with him in no way. And you share it with the person who's all, you know, crusty and angry and sharp and all of a sudden you watch them soften up and, and, they're, and they're hungry. So we've got to be careful not to talk ourselves out of casting the net. Oh, that's a good person. They're bad. This person's way too hard. Oh, they're too sinful. No, cast out the net. And we're going to see that when the net was cast out, it gathered up everything in its way. Now, consider where the net is cast, and, and that reveals to us the next symbol. The net wasn't cast on shore. It wasn't cast, you know, on land. It was cast in the sea. And the sea is our next symbol here. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea. Say sea. Let's talk about the sea a little bit. I hope, I hope that you will see a few things about the sea. So the sea in Scripture always symbolizes the realm of humanity. When the Scripture talks about the sea, it's talking about mankind. 
It often uses that symbolism. I'm going to give you some scriptural examples. Here again, this is a representation of, you know, mankind. Maybe you've heard the term before, a sea of humanity. You know, where there's a large crowd, and someone will say, well, look, it was a sea of humanity. Well, that symbolism, that imagery comes from Scripture. And in this case, the sea is representing the entire realm of the human race. Now, in Matthew 4, 18 through 20, Jesus said to Peter and Andrew, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, think about that. Why is that significant when we're talking about the sea here? Because Jesus was using the same imagery out of a sea of people, a sea of humanity, and these guys could relate to it. Uh, you're not going to catch fish anymore in the water. You're going to actually catch men out of the sea of humanity. See, these guys were perfectly suited for what Jesus was calling them to do. It's just that they didn't know it yet. Sometimes we don't realize it. We've been perfectly gifted, perfectly groomed. Our experiences have all, uh, you know, helped us to get to a certain place where we are the perfect candidates for us to do what God made us to do. Amen, right? Oh, man, my life's been a mess, and I went from this, and I went from that, and I, I suffered this, and I endured that. It's all part of what God is doing to groom you, to make you useful in the kingdom of God. The sea is representing humanity. He says, you guys, I'm going to make you fishers of men. They're thinking, I don't want to catch people. We like fishing. You're going to use all those skills to do something for the kingdom. Now, let's look at some scriptural examples of how humanity is represented by the sea. Revelation 17, 15. And he said unto me, the waters which thou saw, which the harlot sits on are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So, you know, Revelation's talking about uh, the harlot who rides the religious system, the beast, and he says, what does it represent? It represents what? The waters which you saw represent peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. There's from Revelation, talking about the sea represents humanity. Let's look at another example from Revelation. Revelation 13, 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So the beast rising up from the sea is none other than the Antichrist. And what Revelation is telling us is that the Antichrist is not coming from outer space. He's not going to pop up out of the ground like a mushroom. He's going to come out of the sea of humanity. He's going to come out of the nations. He's going to be a, a man out of the sea of humanity who will eventually be completely possessed by Satan, and, and all of this will unfold. But there's the imagery again. The sea is what? It's humanity. Where does the Antichrist come out of? The sea of humanity because he is a man. So there's many more examples, but you know I hope at this point you believe me. So we'll move on. So just as the oceans are teeming with an, an innumerable amount of unique and some undiscovered creations, the sea of humanity is just the same. Do you realize there's species of fish that we haven't even discovered yet? There's fish in some of the deep parts of the ocean, the Marianas Trench, some of these places that they're finding. They just now have the technology to drop submarines down, the un unmanned ones, and take pictures. And they're discovering things they've never seen before. There could be prehistoric stuff down there just waiting to, you know, uh, makes good fodder for movies. But, you know, I mean, 
think about it, the floods covered the earth and killed all the mammals, but the fish were just like, hey, more water, this is great. So we don't know what's down there, and you know, it's, it's, it's a vast, incredible creation, and so is creation, so is humanity. It's vast, it's teeming with life, it's all different, it's all unique, but it is the sea of humanity. So, you know, it, it says what here that, and gathered of every kind. So let's recap, and the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that is cast into the sea. We know what the net is, we know what the sea is, and it gathered of every kind. So when the net goes out, it catches indiscriminately what's in its path. When the gospel goes out, it touches everyone in its path. Everyone who hears it is touched by the net of the gospel. And so the gospel is going to gather all kinds of people. Did you ever look at the church of Jesus Christ? It's made up of all kinds of people. It's just not one kind of people with one type of, you know, skin color or one type of haircut. Could you imagine? I mean, the Mormons all look the same, but I don't know what's going on over there. They all get their haircut just above their brain stem, and they look. But that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is diverse, and it's made up of all kinds, all cultures, all creeds. All, heaven's going to be awesome. It's going to be a beautiful tra tapestry of humanity. It's not going to be cloistered or segregated or, you know, you're not going to go to heaven. Hey, Leonardo, you go to the Italian section. No, we're all mixed up together because that's the body of Christ, amen? It's a beautiful thing. So in the gathered up of every kind, all kinds of people, you know, and, and, and even types of people when it comes to character, you know, it'll gather up the good and the bad we're going to see. So honest and kind and sincere people uh, hear the gospel and make a response to it. Also liars and hypocrites and wolves and all kinds of bad people hear the gospel and make a response to it. So it touches everything in its path. And I want you to see that about this net, this net that we have to cast out the gospel. Uh, we should do it uh, liberally and we should gather in whatever it catches and not question but verse 48 says this which when it was full so now the net has been cast it's cast in the sea it gathers all kinds when the net was full they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels but cast the bad away now i know you know where this is going but the imagery here is pretty stark you know there's a separation taking place after what's gathered you think well once the gospel goes out everybody who hears it is saved i wish but everybody gets a chance to hear, but not everybody responds to it and surrenders to the Lord Jesus Christ who is at the heart of the gospel because he is the good news. So everything's gathered in, but not everyone who's gathered in is saved. And when you look at this here, it says that they gathered the good into vessels. So, you know, you, you pull in your net and you've got these big, beautiful salmon. Don't throw those back, right? I remember when we were first married, we lived up in Rochester. I would go fish in Lake Ontario. Sometimes I'd bring home five or six 40-pound salmon, silver, beautiful. They, we can't even afford them now. You walk by them in the store, you just get to smell them. And the guy's like, that's five bucks. You got to pay him five bucks. But I used to bring these big salmon home, and I'd fillet them on the kitchen table and, you know, cook these uh, these meals here, I, believe it or not, I can cook, right? And so we used to eat this salmon over spaghetti, and it was incredible. So the good stuff, you pull out of the net, and you keep it, and you put it in vessels. It's, 
it's a keeper. Uh, but yet there is bad stuff that's gathered in here. And when you look at this, uh, you see that the bad are dealt with in a different way. Now, notice it's when the net is considered full that it's gathered in. Think about that. There'll be a time where the gospel isn't preached anymore because God's done and everybody's heard and everybody had a chance and everybody got to make their choice. God says, I won't strive with humanity forever. And this is an indication that the net at some point is going to be full, makes it full. Three things. Number one, what makes the net full is when everyone's heard and had a chance to respond. What hastens the coming of the day of the Lord? The church being the church and preaching the gospel to every living creature. That hastens the coming of the Lord. Why? Because everybody's got to hear because of the scripture we read. We read everyone's going to hear and then the end shall come. So when the net, the net will be full when everyone has heard. Number two, the net will be full when all the purposes of God are accomplished. Listen, God has a, a, a plan that is incredibly detailed, and he, he is executing it with perfect timing and synchronicity. God is not up in heaven going, oh, my goodness, they're out of control. Do you see what they're doing down there? No, we need to call a board meeting. They're crazy. Do you see the people in power? Do you see what the nations are doing? There's war, and there's this, and they're threatening to nuke. And ah, It's crazy. God's not sweating. Man's sweating. Lost humanity sweating. Some Christians that don't have their faith locked in right are sweating. But God's not sweating because he's executing his plan. So when will the end come? When God has executed everything in his perfect plan and he says, now it's time. When is that? Not even Jesus knows. Not even the angels know. And we don't know. Only the Father knows. But I remember in the book of Revelation when the souls that were under the altar if you remember that, the souls that were under the altar uh, of God's throne, they were, they were asking the Lord, when are you going to avenge us, uh, of our, avenge our blood because we've been martyred? He said, you know, basically he tells them, rest, take your time until the number of you is full, meaning he has a specific number of people who have to be martyred before he executes the end times and the tribulation begins. Wow. God is doing things perfectly in his perfect timing it's not haphazard it's not out of control it's perfectly synchronized and it's going exactly according to god's plan so when god's done the end will come number three so everybody's got to hear god will accomplish his purposes and number three when evil has run its course and god has totally destroyed it see it's hard for us to understand but God is allowing the kingdom of darkness to exist and to function now. It's not like the devil says, you know, hey, I'm opposed to you, and uh, we're going to fight it out, and let's see if you can beat me. No, God can just not even snap his fingers, just say it's done, and the kingdom of darkness is over. But he's allowing it to exist. Why? Because he's using it for his purposes to separate, you know, the wheat from the tares, to separate the just from the unjust. He's using it for, he's using the kingdom of darkness like a pawn in his master chess game. And when he's allowed evil to run its course and, and Satan to run his course, he's going to judge it once and for all, finally, and in eternity, it will be settled and finished. But until that happens, 
we're going to continue along the path that God has laid out. So the net's going to be full at some point, and those are three indicators of when the net will be full. Now, always remember, God is not on man's timetable. We're on his. God, hurry up. It's getting bad down here. Don't you see what's going on? He's not on our timetable. He's on his own timetable, and when he fulfills all that is in his heart, his master plan falls into place, then with absolute precision, the end will come. We're going to see that the they here mentioned in Scripture are the holy angels of God. In fact, the text actually tells us. It says, which was full and drew to shore and sat down and gathered. They, they sat down and gathered. Who, who are these people that are gathering and sorting? Uh, when verse 49 says, so shall it be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. So there again, it's not our job to pull out the tares. It's not our job to judge sinners. Oh, these people are sinful. These people, it's true, they are, but it's not our job to judge them or, or pray for their judgment. It's our job to preach the gospel to them and even love them. Look, the Bible says to love your enemies. We shouldn't look at the enemies of the church and the enemies of the cross and even our own enemies and say, God, judge them. That's what our flesh does, doesn't it? Look, and I'm just as guilty as anybody. I see some of the stuff that goes on in our nation, and I'm just, uh, you know, I'm like, God, judge this because it's too painful to watch. We got people in our nation and states fighting and complaining and screaming for more abortion rights when you can actually, in some of these states, abort a baby when it's in the birth canal on the ninth month. And they're like, we, we want more, and get your laws off our body, and it's our choice. And really, you need more? It's insane. And, and it's hard for us to watch. But we've got to remember that it's not our job to judge. God will judge, and the angels will sort, and the tares will be removed, not by the church, not by the righteous, but by the angels. And We've got to see that. So it says here that, you know, that they're gathered in uh, here and then they're separated. So if you've ever seen shows like Deadliest Catch, how many have seen them shows where they catch the, it, some of you don't watch TV, it's amazing here, where they catch those crabs out there in Alaska and they bring them in. If you've seen that before, you've seen them pull in these big nets or pull in these lobster traps or the crab pots. They pull them in, and what do they do immediately when they pull them in? They dump them, and they sort them right there. The good crabs, they measure them that are legal. They got a, a thing. They got to measure them. They're good. They throw them in. They sell them. That's money. Everything else is too small or bad or weird stuff that they caught in there. You know, they got a boot. They got a tire. It all goes back in. And that's the process that they're talking about here. When the net comes in, it's immediately dumped and it's sorted. And so what are they doing? They're, they're separating, uh, you know, the good from the bad. So the million-dollar question becomes, what makes a person bad? In fact, why don't you ask me that? That was good. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> This is a perfect place for us to remind ourselves of what really saves us. What makes a person bad, uh, you know, is 
not what most people think. Most people think, well, if you do bad things or you do more bad things than good things or if, you're, you know, if, you, if you kill somebody, if you, if you, you know, uh, it's always like really big sins. You know, everybody's a sinner and they know it, but they list a couple big sins and that's what makes you bad. Usually they list the sins that they didn't commit. So, you know, the million-dollar question becomes what makes a perfect person bad and then we need to remind ourselves well what saves us you know it's not living a perfect life anybody saved here today come on if you saved how many people saved here today that's weak again all right for the three people that are saved did you lead a perfect life all right then you know what it's not a perfect life that saves us moses wasn't perfect he murdered somebody samson wasn't perfect he did all kinds of crazy stuff david wasn't perfect he committed adultery and murdered someone to cover it up so oh you know what, what makes a person bad is when they kill somebody or when they well that doesn't hold up to scripture God said of David, he's a man after my own heart. So what saves us is not living a perfect life. What saves us is not having a, a, a perfect religious performance. Peter messed up so many times. Jesus said, said to him, get behind me, Satan. He denied Jesus three times. Yeah, Peter became a pillar. He became a rock in the early church. Did he have a perfect religious performance? No, he probably had one of the worst performances ever. I never knew the man. Oh, Peter. So it's not a perfect life. It's not a perfect religious performance. It's not having a sinless past or perfect theology. Paul the apostle, you know, stood by and, and had Christians hauled off to jail and murdered and martyred. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, yet she was in Jesus' inner circle and saved by his grace. It's not, you know, this religious outward perfection that religious systems demand what saves us are none of these things in fact if any of these things did save us we're all in a lot of trouble here tonight we should probably leave right now and go to the bar and just numb the pain until the judgment falls did you get that on tape i said if Paul describes exactly what turns a sinner into a saint in Ephesians 2, 7 through 9. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's an awesome scripture to remember. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not earned. It's a gift of God. It's not by works or people would boast about it. It's all God and it's none of us. So what makes a person good or a person bad? It's whether they've come to Jesus Christ through grace and faith and received him as Lord and Savior. What makes a person bad is that they've rejected the grace of God by refusing to take the leap of faith and accept Jesus as the savior of their souls. Now listen, if a person does that, we're, we're all bad, but we're made righteous through Jesus Christ by his blood. It, without Jesus, we're all bad. So the person who refuses Jesus and refuses faith is left to account for their own sins without the advocacy of Jesus, the savior. And then sadly, they will have to pay 
for their sins with their own soul. Wow. It's really simple. We're sinners, and we need a Savior. If we accept the Savior, his blood covers our sin. If we refuse the Savior, we're left to pay our sin ourselves. And what's the wages of sin? Death. And what did it cost Jesus? His death on the cross. And what will it cost mankind? Their eternal soul. So sad because it's completely unnecessary because salvation's a free gift that God offers to everyone. So what makes a person bad is that they refuse the grace of God. So there'll be some people who are thieves and murderers and prostitutes and sexually immoral that will be saved and in the kingdom of heaven forever and ever. And there will be some people who never cussed, never drank, never cheated on their taxes or their spouse, went to church every Sunday and will wind up damned for eternity. Think about that. Because sitting in a church don't make you a Christian any more than sleeping in a garage makes you a car. You need to accept Jesus. And that's our only hope. So there's the answer to what makes a person good and what makes a person bad. And the angels will know immediately who's good and who's bad because those who are, you know, Christians will have the seal of God on them because they're marked with the Holy Spirit, and, and they're filled with the Spirit of God, and they're marked for Jesus Christ. You and I are marked and sealed by Jesus Christ, by his blood, that we're the children of God, amen? When the angels look, they know exactly who's who. Sometimes we can't tell who's who. Sometimes there's, there's a devil sitting next to us in church. Just look straight forward now. Don't, don't say, I knew it, no. We can't tell, but they can tell. So verse 49 says, at the end of the age, look at that. So at the end of the age, or the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. Let's bring this in for a landing here. When the, the scripture says the end of the age, there, there again, there's more symbolism here, but the end of the age is best understood by understanding the theology of dispensationalism. Now I'm gonna give you dispensationalism in a nutshell tonight. Uh, but dispensationalism is a theological system that breaks down the history of man's interaction with God as regulated by covenants. Now, I know that was a mouthful, but at every, at every station of man's development, his interaction with God is regulated by a covenant. Who knows what covenant we're under right now? It starts with a G and it ends with an ace. If you didn't get that, I can't help you. We're in the grace covenant right now. We're in the church age under the grace covenant. So let's look at, just let me give you dispensationalism in a nutshell here so you can have an, a theological understanding of it. The most popular view of dispensationalism teaches that there are seven ages and they are as follow. The age of innocence, that was Adam and Eve. They were in the garden. They were innocent. They didn't know about sin. Then the age of conscience. What happened? Their eyes were open because they ate the fruit. Now they're in conscience. At every point, God makes a new covenant with man. Then there was the dispensation of human government. Do you remember? That's where man ruled over man and tried to implement God's laws, and they got so wicked, God had to raise up Noah to build an ark, and he wiped them all out. Okay, then there's the age of promise, and that's from Abraham to Moses, and that's under the law covenant. Then there's the age of grace that went from, uh, you know, Moses' law covenant up to Jesus Christ where he died, and now we're under this new and better covenant, the grace covenant, and the grace covenant will last 
all the way through the tribulation and then into eternity they'll it'll all be settled and we'll just live under the leadership and rule of god so there's the dispensations in a nutshell you know you can see there's a covenant attached to each of them the age of innocence the age of conscience the age of human government the age of promise the age of law the age of grace and then the the eternal kingdom of god so we are in the the covenant of grace and this is the church age so when he says here at the end of the age he's implying that at the end of the church age what's going to happen then god's going to settle up and it's going to be done and the the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous the the righteous will go to live in eternity with god and the unrighteous will go into eternal judgment now Verse 49b through 50 shows the angels doing the work of separating the wicked from the just. And I want you to notice some of the verbiage that's used here because the implications of it are very powerful. So at the end of the age, now we get it because we all know our theology, the angels shall come forth and sever. Did you hear that? Say sever. Say it like you were severing something sever so at the end of the age of what they're going to sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth so uh, let's just unpack this here the, the last part of the kingdom parable i want you to notice a few things about the separation process we know that the sea of humanity gives up it's dead and the angels judge the, the just and the unjust, and they, they do the separating work here. But here's a few things to notice about the separation process. Yes, the angels do it, but the first thing I want you to notice is it's a forceful process. Think about that. They will sever the wicked from among the just. See, those tares that have been growing up in the wheat for all this time, they are finally going to be dealt with, and when they're dealt with, it will be, they will be dealt with forcefully. Because God is sick of dealing with them and giving them space to repent and dealing with their effects and he is tired of it and the cup of wrath is filled up and he's done and now he's going to judge the wicked and he's going to judge them severely by severing them. I want you to see that. You know, many times we look at the wicked and we think, man, they're living a great life. They got everything going for them. They're rich. They're famous. Everybody likes them. You know, that's not fair. And we've got to understand, like David said, my foot almost slipped until I saw the end of the wicked. And then he realized, wow, I'll take what I got now, this little tribulation that I got now, because the end of the wicked is a horrible end. And what we're seeing here is what David was talking about, the end of the wicked, that the angels would sever them, pluck them out, rip them apart from the righteous. Why does God do that? Because he's contended with them for long enough, and he's even offended at how we have had to contend with them for so long. You know, God sees how the wicked treat his children. God sees how the ungodly treat his church. God hears what they say about us and how they plot against us and how they want to see us destroyed. He sees it. He says, love them. Just Preach to them, just throw the net out to them, just pray for them, but judgment is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So, you know, here's this process. It's a severing. Their judgment is forceful, and the last thing I want you to know about it is their judgment is final. The judgment 
at the end when the separation takes place. You know, put yourself in this picture here. You know, this is not, this is not just fantasy or science fiction or some sort of allegory. Literal angels are going to separate people for the judgment. Could you imagine the horror of someone who, I don't believe in God, and you keep your Jesus, and God's not real, and, you're, and all of a sudden, a 15-foot angel comes and grabs them by the scuff of their neck and rips them up and takes them off towards the furnace. Could you imagine that? Well, it's going to happen. It's not just an allegory. It's not just a nice story. We need to view the wicked in that sense, that their ending is horrific. And we need to have compassion on them and pray for them that God would save them. Because literal angels are going to sever the just from the unjust. And when the judgment happens, it's going to be final. They're going to be thrown into the furnace, and that's for eternity. Dante's Inferno, that famous painting there, you know, it says, Abandon all hope who enter in here. Could you imagine being thrown into hell without a hope forever and ever and ever of any reprieve or ever getting out? That's a horrible ending. And it should sober all of us up to make sure we're really saved, we're really in Christ, there's really oil in our lamps, and we're ready to meet the bridegroom, and that we're doing everything we can to shine our light so that there'll be one less or two less or ten less that the angels will have to pluck up and throw into the furnace. God sends no one to hell. Let me say that again until I get everybody to say amen. God sends no one to hell. When people say to some other person, go to hell, that's the most horrible thing you could say to someone. God doesn't send people to hell. People choose hell because they refuse Jesus. Salvation's a free gift. And nobody will go to hell without choosing hell. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, we thank you for these kingdom parables. You're showing us what the kingdom is like, and this is a sobering one. We want to throw that net of the gospel out into the sea of humanity and pluck up everyone who is able to hear. Father, we pray that you do your miraculous work and turn sinners into saints. And people that were bad can be saved, and you can't be so bad that Jesus' blood can't save you. So, Father, help us to see everyone, no matter how wicked or rotten their behavior is, as a candidate for the grace of God, that you might save the lost, and they might spend eternity in your presence, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. Amen. Let's give him praise tonight.